I feel like some people are going to start to be less um, meticulous about their safety, like oh, as the yes. vaccine starts rolling out. And 100%. that's like, yeah. And that's like what worries me about like restaurants starting to like open, mm-hmm. like at homes right now, like we only have outdoor seating. And whenever we walk up to a guest, like we ask that they like, wear their masks so it's like the least amount of contact possible but we've definitely had people come through that have tested positive right right for sure yeah it's it's really concerning um and yeah i mean i and i'm sure you are too i'm just like so burnt out on it at this point it's like incredibly frustrating to see like it just getting worse and worse and i don't know yeah have you how much how much of your job is like face to face with people? Um, like I know that you do some like research and stuff. Yeah, but. it's a pretty small amount. So in terms of like UCLA, I'm just research and teaching, no clinical there. I work okay. like just on a per diem basis as a nurse, like on my own time. I do it on like weekends and you know random days that I can squeeze in. So I do that probably I don't know like four to six days a month, depending on the month. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing, right? Like anything where you're interacting with people. Like I work at a psych hospital, so we are dealing with people like having suicide and psychosis. But of course, people have tested positive and we've had people come in positive and expose others. The bigger concern, like for me, is that all of the nurses like are testing positive and many of them work in more than one place. And, you know, it's just like if you are out and about and you are not like literally sitting in your living room, you are going to be exposed. And it's there's just no way around that. Right. Yeah. That is, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a problem, but you know, I like obviously can't complain. I feel very lucky to have like gotten the vaccine early and you know, to, to be doing fine myself. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening today. Um, we have a great guest. Um, she is a longtime friend. Um, and we used to have conversations like this all the time. And I was super excited to have her on my podcast because I knew it would be good. Um, it is Kristen Choi. Um, she is an assistant professor of nursing and public health at UCLA. Um, she has a PhD in nursing, a master's in public health, and she's a practicing registered nurse as well. She also happened to be part of the COVID vaccine trials. Um, so I'll ask her a little bit about that, but um, mostly we'll be talking about healthcare reform. So I hope you all enjoy. Yeah, how was so? I I read your article and everything. Oh, like, thanks. How how was it like? I mean, now you've been on uh, like national television and everything. Yeah, too. this like, has been like the weirdest week of my life. Um, so I was in the study this summer, and um, you know, just because I had such a strong reaction to the vaccine, like I've gotten a ton of vaccines in my life, like literally every weird, obscure, trouble vaccine, everything. And I've never had a reaction like this one. I mean, I have never felt so awful and like like yeah. a fever that high. It was really scary. And so I was like, you know, I, I want to write an article just about the experience to help doctors and nurses just be prepared to talk to people about this. I mean, I know that we do a terrible job of explaining <laughs> vaccines to people mm-hmm. because I do a terrible job and like we are not ready for this. 
Um, but you know, the story just happened to hit on such a hot week for vaccine news because of, um, the approval coming and it was approved in the UK, I think like the day the story hit and it just got like really picked up by media in a way that like I did not expect. Like I got calls from like MSNBC, CNN, NBC, ABC, like Fox, like everybody. I, um, on Monday, I just talked to Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta I was invited to be on Fox and Friends of all shows. Um, like, yeah. <laughs> it, it was uh, just really like kind of an explosion. I I, I was just counting because I've been working with the use of the media people. And I think I've done like 50 interviews between like print, oh, radio, shit. TV, news. Like I've been on TV in like Greece, France, Korea, Japan, like... I've never had anyone care about what I have to say prior to this because unfortunately I work in mental health and no one cares. So, Hey, I care about what you have to say. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I've wanted you on my show forever. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad to finally be here, but yeah, no, in terms of like my research, like I write papers all the time. I have like slaved over data for years that no one reads. And then just like one story, like just happens to really hit at a hot moment. So it's been a Mm. real media crash course. I have learned a lot. Um, I think it's been like a cool opportunity. I've gotten a lot of great emails of people who, you know, um, either are doctors and nurses and are going to be better prepared or who want to get the vaccine. And so that's great. But also, I mean, you know this, like, it's just really odd interacting, especially with like cable news. Like, it's just, I think that I have felt like in control, but there's definitely an element where it feels like these people, there's a very strong push just for them to just like use me, you know, like people just right. want like the most sensational details and they want clicks and views and they don't actually really care about the message I'm trying to communicate. So it's felt like this constant pull between like, okay, these people want to use me for a story. Um, how can I make sure that, you know, if I am a part of this, that I actually say something that's meaningful to people. And that's right. been like a constant tension. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like, especially with like CNN and msnbc and then fox and friends i feel like they all kind of have like uh they're trying to get specific points like pull them out and then like be able to regurgitate them as much as possible yes exactly and they only want the most sensational detail which is that i had like a high fever i read the pfizer report and like from what i can tell i had like one of the highest fevers of anyone in the study i don't know if anyone had a fever higher than me um there were only like four people that had anything even close to what i did out of like forty thousand, and so that's all they want to talk about like oh my god you had this insane fever like wow like these vaccines are scary and like that is of course totally not the point (laughs) i'm trying to make so um yeah it's it's a tension um I uh, did not actually end up going on Fox and Friends because like for obvious reasons, there's like a number of problems, but I did talk to a different Fox News reporter who was uh, similarly scummy and uh, not the best. Uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. So you you said that you've never really had like a huge adverse reaction to a vaccine. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what my reaction to uh, it will be because I have had bad reactions in the past. So I'm wondering if oh, like yeah? there's like any correlation there. Um, but what is yeah, your I remember reaction when I was, in the past? Uh, so it was when I was a kid. Um, I want to say I was like no older than like first or second grade, maybe like third uh-huh. or fourth grade. 
Um, but I think I got like three vaccines at once and I just got like super sick, like high yeah. fever, like, um, just did like felt all around achy mm-hmm. and I specifically remember it because I missed like this, like all school event that I like really wanted to go to. Oh. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, my mom definitely made the most of it for me. Like, yeah. Sure yeah. I- well, and like what I think we have to tell people is like that reaction that you had, which sounds exactly like what I had, like that is a signal that the vaccine is working, right? Like vaccines work by activating your immune system and those that gives you these symptoms you have when you're sick. I don't think we explain to people like why they're having that reaction. Like generally it's just like, oh, you might have these side effects and people don't make the connection that when that happens, you don't have to be worried about it. It's like a good thing. It's a signal that it's working, even if it's not like super pleasant. So I really hope that people will start to make that connection and that we can be just give people the benefit of the doubt enough to explain to them why and, you know, not freak them out. Yeah. But yeah, having had that reaction in the past, I do wonder too, if you would have a strong reaction and what the data are showing from Pfizer is that people who are younger, um, definitely like the younger you are, the worse your symptoms are because of course the stronger your immune system is and the more it's going to kick in and get activated. So yeah, I don't know, like maybe plan to take a day off of work if you get it. Yeah. I think I'll probably definitely, I mean, is there like a, is there a, is it pretty common that's the second dose that gives you uh, the side effects? So like the first dose, I don't really have to worry about. Yes. So for both Pfizer and Moderna, there were some side effects, the, the first dose, but it was like dramatically stronger and more pronounced, more prevalent, the second dose. So that's the one I would really worry about. Okay. That's good to know going forward. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, enough about the vaccine. <laughs> we should talk about your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I, uh, I have to say also, I'm so sick of talking about the vaccine. Like I have talked about the vaccine and like having yeah. this goddamn fever like a hundred times. So <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I won't ask any more questions. I uh <laughs> I was just uh curious just on like a personal level to see. Like, oh no, no I'm glad to you. talk with you about it. I mean, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, it's more of the like telling the media spiel and trying to like yeah, be yeah. very <laughs> message to these awful reporters. So Yeah, it's like the the press junket answer, you know. Uh yes, yes. Well, at least you, uh, at least you have some experience now for when you're like a hotshot, um, <laughs> scientist in the future, you like know how to do it and get it done. There you go. Or maybe like people will continue not caring about my research on like suicide and trauma. And I don't know. We'll see. Ho- hopefully, uh, hopefully not though. I did get a really cool. So this, I was actually really excited about. I got an email from, um, Adam Schiff's staff. Adam Schiff is like a representative from California. He's a pretty well-known guy. Yeah. Um, but he was like, would you um, be willing to, to come and do a town hall with Adam to talk to his constituents about the vaccine? Like we saw you on the news mm. and thought it would be really cool to do just like a Q&A with people in the East LA community. I was like, yes, of course, I would love to do that. Like that that is yeah. just like actually useful to people and actually talking to real human beings, not in like sensational news, I would actually be super excited about yeah, that sounds awesome. It also seems yeah. like even though you've had to do the like kind of uh, press junket, like mm-hmm. uh, soundbite interviews, it seems like it, it could open up at least connections um, yeah. and networking. So Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, yeah. It would be cool if, if that was the case. Yeah. Um, 
speaking of your your current work um and like the data that you have been doing and not just mm-hmm. the vaccine uh could, could you like it kind of uh for for me as a refresher uh because the last time i think i heard you talk about your work was at your uh, uh doctoral presentation yes or, my or, phd or, defense was, right yeah 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 your phd defense that was the last time i've like heard you really like talk in depth about it but I'd love to like hear just kind of like a general summary of like what you're doing and like what your research and stuff looks like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'll give you a summary and I'll tell you how also it's changed since COVID because COVID has like affected everything, you know, basically all health research is now COVID research. So, you know, when I was at Michigan, I was studying PTSD and trauma, as you know, and I would characterize what I was doing there as very clinical research. It was very focused on, you know, how does this disease, PTSD, manifest in individual people? What do the symptom clusters look like? What is the clinical presentation of this disease? And, you know, that was fine. That was important research to do. But I have always felt far more interested in health systems, health services, and health policy than, you know, the the nitty gritty clinical side of things. Um, I'm, you know, uh, someone who really likes to think about systems and processes and studying systems and processes in healthcare has always seemed more interesting to me than studying individual people or individual disease processes. So um, part of the reason that I came to UCLA was because I wanted to do a fellowship in exactly that, how how to do health yeah. services research and health policy research and move from studying individual people or diseases to studying systems. Uh, so when I got to UCLA, I kind of started to make that jump. I really moved uh, to doing research on how we deliver mental health services for kids. Uh, what are the structures like? What are the processes like? How do we uh, document and collect data on systems and think about targeting Uh, interventions for systems. Um, And and that's a whole different kind of research because one, it's a lot messier and more complicated. You know, you're working with um, a a really, really complicated and messy system, and that makes it very hard to do clean science. And two, a lot of the standard ways that we do research that you would see in a clinical trial, speaking of a clinical trial like the Pfizer vaccine, it is impossible to do a nice, clean, placebo-controlled trial on a health system process. You just can't do that. And you definitely can't do it on a health policy. You can't randomize people. There's no control group. It's just a totally different world. So I had to learn a whole new skill set for how to do that real world research. Um, and a lot of that is in a camp of science called implementation science. That's about how we translate research and data into you know real world change in systems. Um, mm. And then the other thing is that you know when I was doing my PhD, uh, I was really focused on just one thing. I was only studying trauma and PTSD. But I, I felt like I had so many other interests uh, in the world of mental health and trauma that I wanted to explore. And so I kind of moved from clinical to health services research and then also just expanded what I was working on. I started studies on firearm violence, on trauma among healthcare providers, on uh, suicide, on depression, on autism and developmental disabilities, and just really added um, a lot more different topics to the mix. And I think now, uh, you know, all of those different things are still going forward in some way. I really think of my work as a portfolio uh, where there are different projects that move forward at different times. And, you know, I'm not as married to just one topic as I was uh, when I was a PhD student. I, I think much more about how can I apply the skills that I have to solving a number of problems related to mental health. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's where things are right now. My, my main project is looking at autism services in the state of California and how our insurance laws around coverage of therapy affects actual access to services and then outcomes uh, for patients with autism, focused mainly on kids. Um, I'm doing some work on trauma and secondary trauma in the lives of nurses, how uh, being involved mm. in stressful um, events like responding to a mass shooting or you know some other uh, natural disaster, how those things affect uh, practicing healthcare providers, and how uh, trauma in the lives of healthcare providers, like sexual assault or child abuse, affects their work. And then I'm also um, doing some work uh, looking at homelessness services uh, among people with uh, serious mental illness in Los Angeles and how we can uh, make our mental health services and our homelessness services work together better so that people um, can kind of receive both mental health treatment and housing when they're experiencing a crisis. Um, yeah. That was all pre-COVID. And then post-COVID, like, it's just created so much more work, um, which is, it's it's created opportunity in mental health, I think. I, I was just talking to um, a reporter about this, actually, how COVID has revealed a lot of health system frailties and problems. And that's exciting because we can move towards solutions. And this has forced us to innovate in ways that we have never been forced to before. That's really mm -hmm. great. But also, you know, shining a light on these problems, um, it, it creates a lot of work that, that we all have to do to fix them. So um, I've uh, yeah. moved to doing some work on, sorry, I know I'm talking fast. Uh, I, I've moved no, to doing some work on uh, how kids with autism have been affected by COVID, how the kind of loss of school and special education and therapy and the move to telehealth has affected kids and families. Uh, I'm doing some work looking at changes in suicide uh, in the safety net population among teens. Uh, I noticed in my own practice that uh, back in the spring when the stay-at-home orders in California first hit, there was a real change in the ways people were attempting suicide and the reasons people were attempting suicide and a big increase in this whole new category of stressors that were related to COVID or to stay-at-home or to online school. And so I am working yeah. on a study right now to kind of document that new um, kind of growth of suicides that were, you know, specifically related to the pandemic uh, and how we can um, think about telehealth or other distance services for people that might be um, in crisis. Yeah. That, that uh, is, that's, that's it. That was a lot. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I, I have a couple questions um, following up with that. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned uh, that, you were talking to the reporter about like having new opportunities to kind of like adapt and like innovate, mm -hmm. like the way that you're um, kind of looking at how like health systems come together, like mm -hmm. under the COVID era. Um, what do you think? So, okay. One of the things that's like often talked about in uh, like, I guess like kind of like a meme economy. <laughs> I, don't, uh -huh. I don't know how to, how to describe it, but like, I see it on Reddit a lot. I see it on um, like, you know, the Instagram like pages, like, so you want to talk about and like impact and like mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, they talk about how 2020 isn't necessarily like uh, the worst year ever. It's more of just like the fact that like all of these like issues that we've had, forever are just mm -hmm. like exacerbated by what's going on. Sure. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Like if you think that like COVID specifically um, 
opened up and like showed like the systemic problems or if it like is actually creating um like if if, if it's creating more problems than it's actually just exposing yeah yeah ab- absolutely you know i i really think it's the latter or i'm sorry the former that you know this has just revealed a lot of um frailties in our systems and problems that have always yeah. been there and i think that's really clear because if you look at how other countries have responded like there are countries out there that are like living their normal lives they do not have COVID. like it was yeah. very possible to like respond quickly and stop this if we had adequate public health infrastructure and um right. we're, we're willing to make a commitment but we didn't so this didn't have to be a problem but it is and it's you know now exerting all these other effects because of problems that were pre-existing so i think that's the case and i i think it's definitely um the case for mental health too i think it's you know just highlighting existing problems in the system and a lot of gaps that have been there for a long time yeah what do you have okay you probably have a lot of thoughts on this but are do you have a uh, general um i guess ideas about how we can improve our mental health structure like i know that it's a very complicated process that's really hard to like describe in just like you know yeah yeah like no for sure response, but yeah i i have a couple thoughts and absolutely it's complicated it's different for everyone i think one of the really hard things about mental health is that it's something that's very very highly tied to um social and community context and so it's not something mm-hmm. where we can have a one-size-fits-all solution that we can just apply to everybody but there are a couple opportunities in terms of the system that I think we should be thinking about. So one is that I think the move to technology and telehealth for mental health and the kind of emergence of apps and ways to get mental health services through either phone, computer, video, internet, whatever, I think that those are really, really exciting. Um, one of the biggest problems that we have in mental health is a real maldistribution of providers. So there was some research that came out recently showing that in the United States, 70% of counties in the U.S. do not have a single child psychiatrist. 50% of counties do not have a single adult psychiatrist. And it's not that we don't have um, psychiatrists and mental health providers, but they're just concentrated in cities. And if you look at where people actually live, um, just about half of Americans live in a designated mental health provider shortage area. so I think that there is this element that we need more providers, which I'll talk to in a second. But in terms of helping people to access these like providers we do have that are just overly concentrated in some areas, I think the opportunity to use technology for that is really good. Um, and mm. it's a, something, again, where we were forced to do it because of the pandemic, but it's something that I hope we can sustain beyond the pandemic. I think for some people, there will always be demand to talk to a psychiatrist or a therapist or a mental health provider in person, and that can be really important. But for some people, it actually makes it easier. There's less barriers to entry if you can text or talk on the phone or just be in your own home and be comfortable to accessing mental health care when you might feel intimidated about, you know, walking into a psychiatrist's office. So the technology and the telehealth, I hope is something that will stay and be an option for people that want to use it. 
that being said, you know, face-to-face is very important and there are also problems with that. I, I had a friend who was telling me about a patient who had been seeing a um, therapist and the family didn't know because this patient, you know, there was a lot of stigma in his family. And so when COVID hit and the whole family had to be at home together and he had to talk to his therapist on the phone, he would go and like hide out in the car because his family didn't even know he was seeing a therapist. And while it was in person, it was way easier to just sneak out and make an excuse and, and the family didn't have to know. So I think we need both. Right. We need options for some people to be able to go in person and then for some people to use telehealth uh, or texting right. or apps, any of any of those things. Um, so the second piece is that even though uh, telehealth can help with access, there is still just this provider shortage that there's no way of getting around. We, we really, really need more healthcare providers. I personally am very excited about the potential for nurses to fill some of that gap. Uh, we know mm. that... Um, Nurse practitioners uh, provide equal care to physicians within the scope of their practice. That's been shown in decades and decades of randomized trials. And every year, states are recognizing that evidence by you know, passing laws that allow nurse practitioners to practice independently of physicians. The, mm-hmm. um, the really interesting thing about NPs is there's been a lot of studies that show that they are far more likely to go to rural and underserved areas than physicians. There is also a lot of evidence that shows that physicians more and more and more want to go into specialty care. They don't want to be primary care doctors or psychiatrists. Those specialties just do not have enough people um, who, to keep up with the needs. And so kind of thinking about all these things together, there's evidence that nurse practitioners can provide the same care. They want to go to underserved areas more than physicians. They want to practice in areas like primary care and mental health that physicians do not appear to want to practice in as much. It's so obvious to me that we need to really leverage the nursing workforce to meet some of those gaps. Uh, When COVID hit, a lot of states passed laws um, to expand or, or grant additional scope of practice to nurses because it was so clear that we needed nurses to be engaged. So that is a really exciting right. change that I hope will last um, beyond the pandemic. There's a lot of new exciting programs coming out to cross-train nurse practitioners uh, to be uh, psychiatrically trained, to provide mental health care. And so I think nurses will be a huge part of filling in those gaps, especially in rural areas. And, and there's a lot of promise to expand our mental health workforce um, with nurses. Uh, there's a lot of issues and problems there that I could talk about for a long time. We have a number of bottlenecks in the process of educating nurses because of a lack of nurses with PhDs that make this hard. But um, I, yeah. I think that we can get there and, um, you know, it's going to be part of the solution for sure. The last thing. Oh, sorry. Do you have, do you have a question? Uh, just a quick follow up to that. Um so like kind of like in a nutshell, passing laws that make it easier for NPs to practice on their own and mm-hmm. even potentially like making uh, like hospital policy changes where like nurses can pursue um, like a PhD like mm-hmm. in some like kind of program. Do you think those are like uh, what would really help nurses become like uh, better yes. advocates for? Okay. Yes, absolutely. And I also think that, you know, there should be more funding out there to support nurses who either want to become NPs or want to get a PhD. Those are just such like crushing gaps and needs right now. And 
uh, you know, there's a lot of funding that goes into medical education, public money, a lot more than what goes to nursing. I'd love to see um, more resources put towards educating nurses because, again, it's just it seems clear to me that that's a really exciting potential way to increase our mental health workforce when, yeah. frankly, a lot of others have abdicated their job or, or, or the job that they've historically had to, to address people's needs in primary care and mental health and to go to places where people actually need care. The part of the maldistribution of providers is also um, around our insurance laws. A lot of providers uh, don't want to take the people who really need care, who might have public insurance or not have insurance. And we end up with this system where the worried well have a lot of access to therapists and psychiatrists, but the people who are really, really sick and who really need it just don't. Um, Or they're left with um, public mental health systems or safety net systems that are already just very overburdened and under-resourced. So anyways, lots of... um, Lots of problems there. The The final thing I was going to say on the pandemic, though, is that I think it's also created a lot of opportunity uh, in terms of just um, societal stigma being lessened around mental health. I think that, you know, in my uh, adult life, which is not that long, but I've been an adult for 10 years, I'm 28, um, I think that I have seen stigma around mental health going away. It feels like it's become more and more and more acceptable to talk about it, um, which Mm -hmm. is really good. But we know that stigma still exists out there. I think that this pandemic has, in some ways, in regards to mental health, been something where all of us have experienced psychological distress in some way this year. We have all felt afraid, lonely, scared, isolated, even depressed uh, or anxious or or something that might be more serious. And um, I think that that kind of universal experience of um, mental distress is something that has helped to lessen stigma even further and make it uh, acceptable for people to talk about it, um, to reach out. And I hope that lowering some of those stigma barriers and social barriers uh, will also be something that can lead more people to accessing services that they need um, even after the pandemic is over. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that actually uh, is something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms Mm. of like the way that things are like going digital. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, I hope that a lot of that doesn't go away. Like yes. the yes. access, the easy access to like, even just like the focus on um, something like a personal trainer, right? Like yeah. being able to just like uh, kind of like do stuff at your own house and like have them kind of like, like watch and like improve your form and stuff like that, like is really great. And mm-hmm. um, even for like occupational therapy, like things like that, where like you could have you know, someone kind of like show you like what's going on and like you can instruct them. Right. 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 Um, but one of the interesting things you mentioned this a little bit earlier too, is just like telehealth and everything like that is um, I've, I've been reading a little bit about the metaverse lately. Have you like heard of that? Like, do you know what that is? Oh boy. Uh, you know, I think I may have heard of that back in my like ex-evangelical days but it's been a while so tell me tell me what it is so the metaverse is this idea of uh like basically all virtual like worlds for lack of a better Hmm. word coming together like into like our daily life and so the idea it's kind of like more of a sci-fi concept than it is like a a philosophical concept but like it affects Hmm. the philosophy of things because of just how dramatically 
like it changes the way that we interact with the internet. Um, but cool. the idea is like, we already have things like Google glasses, right? Where like theoretically mm-hmm. you can like, you know, access information in your eyes, like through like a yes. kind of that kind of thing. Um, and we also have like, you know, like phones now pretty much like can track your movements and like, you know, give you directions or it can tell you like what's in the area, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But like at a certain point, we'll be able to get to a place where the internet is just like not really a thing that we access, but a thing that's just like always mm-hmm. uh, available, like just present, like regardless of um, like where we are or like what we're sure. connected to virtually. Um And so the metaverse to me feels like a really, really good um, uh, solution or at least like something that uh, could help um, with things like telehealth. Because um, if we get to a point where it's just, it's as common to like kind of move through a digital interface or like a digital society as it is to move through like a physical one then that creates like way more access way more education opportunities like someone wouldn't necessarily have to move um across the country to go to a school across the country but like still have the same uh yeah or at least a very similar education yeah completely i I think Um, you're totally right about that and i mean in some ways that's already true for our world or it feels true but i think we're going to see even more of that you know like i have been so excited for the day when zoom figures out how to like use virtual reality to make us like feel like we're in a meeting room and like what if we Mm -hmm. could do that for mental health too you can feel like you're with a therapist or you're with your group of people and it doesn't matter where you are um, there's a lot of potential for that kind of technology. And to me, that's really exciting and, and worth embracing. Yeah. And uh, in uh, this is like way farther out there, but like a sci-fi oriented thing that I like just thought of is like, uh, we already have, uh, you know, like robotics that can be controlled by like the human mind, right? Like there Mm -hmm, are things mm -hmm. that can like open and close hands and stuff like that. And there's like machine learning and AI that can like also uh, kind of um, almost foresee what you're planning on doing to make Mm -hmm. it a smoother like process. And I'm just like, what if like eventually we get to the point where there's like a, I don't know, like a Baymax, I guess, kind of character who can like, Uh uh, like you basically go to a clinic and like, even though they might not have a, like this a specific person there who can work with you directly they can have this like baymax figure who like can basically guide and control um like be controlled by the actual physician who like maybe is like five hours away or like across the country yeah absolutely Um, or in some cases maybe we don't even need as much like human labor in healthcare if we as we have in the past i mean you know, at, people like have told me before that like someday like doctors and nurses are going to be gone. There's just going to be robots and, and we our profession will be just replaced by technology. That's a little hard for me to believe. I just kind of at the end of the day think that like people are relational. There's always going to be some need for um, caring work and, and relational yeah. work and healthcare. But I do think that there is a lot of parts of healthcare that could be automated, and there is a lot of um, there's a lot of things that could be made more efficient by using technology the way you describe, and that's true for mental health just as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't foresee I don't foresee things that like direct human uh, interaction is like 
important like yeah I, I don't know for example like physical therapy like yes a robot theoretically could do that but I think a lot of what helps someone get through like recovering from a traumatic experience is um, that human connection, right? Oh, completely, so completely. And this is like really well documented in research. Like when you look yeah. at therapy and like what makes therapy successful, it has like not as much to do with like the techniques you're using or, you know, what kind of cognitive approaches or, or how adherent you are or anything. The most powerful predictor of treatment success in therapy is your sense of therapeutic alliance. Like how much do you like your therapist? If you like them and you feel like you're both in this together, then you get better. And that's true too for nursing. One of the most powerful things that we do for people when they're sick. And it's the reason why when people leave the hospital, they have no idea who their doctor was, but they really remember their nurses is it's, um, mm. is the relationships that you build with people that is like actually healing to people. The, the relationship we call it a therapeutic relationship in nursing because building a relationship is not just about being nice or being courteous or something. It's about, there's actual evidence that this helps people heal. So, um, yeah. I, I agree that part of it is always going to have to be there in some way. But there is a lot, again, I think, where we can make things more efficient. There are some uh, particular kinds of health concerns and diseases and things that we probably could automate, at least some. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you were saying that, like, most people uh, remember their nurses and not necessarily their doctors, like, mm -hmm. that made me think of, you know, when I was six years old, broke my arm, um, I, this story is, uh, like, not very long, but it's just, <laughs> I, um, I broke my arm, went in, I wasn't put out by whatever they gave me to like make me fall asleep so they could reset my arm. So I was mm -hmm. awake, like as like a six year old, oh, God. like as they had to like re-break my arm. How um, awful. Yeah. And I just remember that being like so painful to the point that like, when I think back to it, I like almost had an out of body experience. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and like it, part of it just like, because I can, you know, so far back, but it's just, I remember that, but I also remember a nurse buying me a pack of gum and telling me that I was like super brave to like get oh. through that. And that was like profoundly impactful for me. Like, mm. uh, not necessarily like in a, um, like, I wouldn't say that that's like something that like I can look back and I learned a lesson from it. Mm -hmm. It's more of just like, a like I experienced human empathy and I experienced like compassion and I experienced like connection with like someone who didn't necessarily have to do what they did, but they yeah. chose to do it because it was um, like a loving thing to do. And yeah, yeah. Um, that's yeah, like, that, that's, that's just always impacted me. Totally. I mean, that's a perfect example of, of exactly kind of this, this thing that like having somebody, you know, have a relationship where they care for you and are, are giving you empathy and care when you, in most cases, if you're in a hospital are having probably the worst day of your life, or maybe are in a really scary or even life threatening situation. 
we know that, you know, powerful emotions stick in our brains um, longer, you know, when we're in that vulnerable moment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, having someone who will be there for you and care about you uh, can be incredibly impactful. And so it's, um, I'm sorry that you had that horrible experience, but it's really <laughs> interesting that, that what stands out is, is this nurse just, you know, probably making what took like a three seconds to make that comment, right? But it's something that sticks yeah. with you in such a powerful way. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, and, and that's, I mean, that's why I definitely agree that like nurses would be amazing choices to like invest in the mental health care infrastructure of our country. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure, for sure. Like imagine, imagine someone that's just like, uh, like really struggling for whatever reason, it could be like housing insecurity, food insecurity, it could be like actual like physical health or it could be like I lost my job and mm -hmm. I'm feeling like I'm about to break down like if you could actually go into a clinic or a hospital and there is a there is someone that was trained to just like sit down with you in that kind of like emergency room style mm -hmm. like setting like I feel like that would be so good for so many people because I mean yeah it's I, scary I, as, as much as I would as much as I would always advocate for someone to have uh, like a consistent like therapist that they see, it's just like not normalized yet for everyone to yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes just like, especially right now, like with uh, the cost of healthcare and everything, like it's just not feasible financially for right. people to do that sometimes. Totally. So totally. Yeah. And you know, I've seen some really interesting research where, cause, cause we know that one of the hardest parts about healthcare is just that it's so depersonalized, you know, we just treat people like objects turning through this really awful system and people really struggle. They, they feel alone. They don't know what's going on and there's no one to, to care about them or look out for them, except maybe if you're lucky, yeah. a nurse, um, I've seen a lot of interesting research coming out looking to to embed community health workers in healthcare where, you know, you you can have someone who looks like you, speaks your language, you know, is from your community, be with you to help you go through healthcare experiences. And for people who have complicated chronic conditions or are hospitalized, it can go a really long ways too to have um a community health worker or, or anyone really um, with you. And, and yeah, I think building those relational things into healthcare and making sure that there are ways for people to receive care and build relationships where there is trust is, is just so important. It's something yeah. that's really missing. Yeah. That, that, that whole idea, I think of human connection I mean, we, I, I think, I feel like we've talked about this in the past, mm -hmm. but that was probably under the guise of, um, you know, ex-evangelical postmodern Christian language. <laughs> um, but the idea of like the way to, and I still believe this, even if I don't use the same language, the, the way to heal from a relational trauma can only be done through relationship, right? Absolutely. Yeah, abs absolutely. That that's true. I would still stand by that statement, even though I'm not like in my um, post evangelical stage anymore, and I'm not really religious yeah. anymore. It's still true, and that that is you know evident in research too that that relationships right. are healing, and and it's it's really important part of the process, and that's true for your mental health, but it's true for your physical health too. And I, mm -hmm. I wish that we had more of of that um, relational approach to how we did healthcare. I think that um, this is another place I think where maybe there's opportunity for COVID to help us do better. Like I just, 
like I'm haunted at night when I think about the stories of people who are dying alone in hospitals, who can't be with their families, who are alone um, in isolated rooms and their families are watching them die over FaceTime. It's just the most haunting thing I, I can yeah. think of. Um, and, uh, you know, in many cases, the only person there with them is their nurse. Uh, and a lot of places, uh, you know, doctors aren't going to patient rooms, nurse practitioners aren't going to patient rooms. The only people going to be with the patients to physically be there with them are the nurses. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that one just shows how important nurses are and how powerful what they're doing is in a way that has not been seen before. But I think we need to leverage that as an opportunity to understand how much this matters and to, to use it to make healthcare systems that are more relational and more accommodating towards uh, people's families and communities and are just not so depersonalized and, and sterile, you know? Yeah. Man, I, I feel like I, I feel really strongly about that. You know, mm -hmm, uh, it mm -hmm. just feels like something that feels, it feels like something that feels, uh, it feels second nature almost. It, it doesn't seem like something that is that hard to get to logically, Completely. uh, but it, it's such it, but it seems to get pushed back whenever it's like implemented. I know it, it does. It does. I think there's a really, really strong push in biomedicine and healthcare uh, to maintain the status quo of a lot of power dynamics where we healthcare providers treat you patients like objects and we do what we want to you and we know best and we tell you what to do and how to act and what to do for your health. And we want you to just come in and comply and be like objects in this system. Yeah. Um, that is the 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 power dynamic and the history that we're up against, you know, and that's very hard to subvert. It's very hard. And I see amazing examples of us improving and doing better and places where there really are teams and patients really are at the center. And those are so great, but it feels like they're still just anecdotes right now. They're not something that we do in widespread practice. And, um, yeah, there's a really strong pull to, to kind of maintain the status quo rather than to really put patients at the center and think about what's going to help people heal and what do they need rather than, uh, you know, how do we exert power here and, and do what we think is best. Yeah, that uh, that totally makes sense to me. And it, it kind of makes me think a little bit about how uh, there's like so much uh, systemic racism in healthcare. Yes. Um, in like the sense that like if you know the majority of healthcare providers just kind of like come in with this attitude of um like i am going to get this person through like this process like mm -hmm. uh machine that i have and like get them the care that i think that they need rather than like listening to them and like hearing them yes. and like having it be a dialogue makes it way easier for someone who has you know inherent um, like racist, uh, attitudes, whether like it's intentional or not, mm -hmm. like it'd be really easy for, you know, some of the, the stereotypes and stigmas, um, that are, you know, false to be perpetuated in that situation if there's no dialogue happening. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of that, this, this goes back really far, you know, to how we're trained to be doctors or nurses or pharmacists or therapists, whatever it is we're, we're doing. Like there's a lot of like really racist frameworks embedded in how we're taught about disease and about health and about healthcare delivery 
and how how we deal with them. And so, yeah, I, I think it has to, uh, like most un, unjust power structures, we really have to go back to a really fundamental level and a really high level of structures um, to, to see change in some of these things. And obviously that's not easy to do, but it's really clear that it's what needs to happen. Yeah, man, it's, oh man, the idea I mean, we've, we've, we've always talked about power dynamics and stuff like that, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the idea of power, I feel like has been so relevant to me lately, just like in mm. understanding the dynamics of like power in relationships or power, like uh, how like the government works or like power yeah. of even just like anyone who has like a certain like level up over someone else mm -hmm. and I, I remember listening to Brene Brown's podcast, the one with Joe Biden. Um, uh -huh. And one of the things that she talks about, like they kind of like mostly just shoot the shit when he's like actually on. <laughs> she asks him like a couple questions that are like good and he gives like some pretty good answers. But um, beforehand, she talks a little bit about power and hmm. how, um, how she views like the administration like transitioning is uh like there's kind of like a trump like power over um hmm. thing happening where like it's it's about kind of like winning and like dominating and like pushing through like without like caring about um like the opposition like it's about getting shit done and it's like all about this like brutal power right mm, um yes. like i yes. can do it because i can do it um whereas like she talks about biden and like obviously this is going to be something that's like very hotly contested and like before the election i was you know i was bleeding blue and now like now that the election's over i'm going to be just as critical of biden's administration as i've been sure. with anyone. <laughs> um but uh like it, one of the things that she talks about is like the power with um, and how that is using your power to uplift the person or people that you are like either guiding or um, like mm -hmm. doing something with. And it, it was such, it was such a good way for me to kind of internalize the power dynamics that I've seen like in the church um, mm -hmm and like through deconstruction, but like also like in work environments. Um, yes. And, yes. Uh, and, and I think of that with like the healthcare thing because uh, doctors and really anyone that's educated in healthcare, I would say probably the majority of their patients are not educated uh, mm -hmm. in what's best for them and like what's best for their bodies. And so that there is uh, this, it's probably really easy to make it a power over thing where it's just like, yes. I know better, like do this. Absolutely. Um, and I, not I, a power with where you can like come alongside the person and kind of like guide them, help them see. And it's not just like a, because I, because I said so kind of thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And you're completely right about the power dynamics piece and how that plays out in healthcare. And I wish we lived in a world in a society where people, you know, from a young age were educated, where they knew about their bodies and how they worked and where they were, we were taught to be um, in tune with their bodies and how we feel and what's going on in our minds and how that connects to our physical bodies rather than what most of us do, which is living in a really dissociated state from our bodies, being really out of touch mm -hmm. with how our minds and bodies connect and um 
having a lot of systemic forces around us that are toxic to our bodies, whether that's, you know, the food environment we live in or the media environment we live in or, or actual violence in where we're living, whatever the case may be, there's so many forces yeah. that just seem like they come together to make us not well and to make us separate our bodies from our minds and, and make us uh, not have information to be in control of our own health. Um, and I would love to see that change because uh, I, I really do think at the end of the day, we do know our bodies best and what's best for them. And uh, a lot of times, you know, the reason people come into healthcare and uh, don't know is because of these forces and communities that have made it that way, you know, where, where we don't have agency right. and information uh, to be in touch with these things for ourselves. So yeah, again, there's a lot of like levels and places where this needs to flip and change and where we need to do things differently. Um, but you know, I, I, in a really, really small way, like I'm really glad to be a part of that now as, as a nursing professor, you know, I, I feel like I can't change like all the forces of systemic racism in healthcare or like all the ways that people are educated about health. But I can make sure that every nurse that graduates from UCLA that I get to teach, you know, knows about systemic racism in healthcare and how they can fight against it and how, um, you know, structures and communities affect health and why they matter uh, for, for us as nurses. So, you know, in a small way, I think about how I can, um, try to advance uh, justice and the right thing in these areas in, in one small corner of the world, even if I can't do it everywhere. Yeah, totally. That, that, that all feels really true. Uh, I, I think so personally, one of the things that I've been kind of learning and teaching myself this year mm -hmm. is the like dissociation that I've had with my body um, yes. like for the last like three or four years at least, and really probably longer than that, I've like not cared for my body, mm. um, in like ways that are like life giving. And like, whenever I've like, sure. uh, whenever I've like chosen to like go on like a, like a diet, like eat better, like exercise more, it's never from a place of like, I love my body. I want to care for it. It's always been from a place in the past of like, I don't like the way that I look or mm. I like know that I need to eat healthier because that's the right thing to do. It's never sure. been out of a, like, I feel empowered to make the right choices. It's always been a, like, I feel shame. Mm. So I need yes. to make better choices. Sure. Um, sure. And this year of all years, um, I have like really been trying and especially the last couple of months have been really trying to um, make better habits, but that comes from like, uh, you know, multiple months and like maybe even like a year of like learning to have like a body neutrality, like yeah. view of myself um, and just like love my body and like learn to do these things out of like a love for myself and like a self care thing. Sure, um, sure. But it, it just goes to show how hard that is, right? Because it like you yeah. talked about, you know, your instinct over and over is to, to operate from a place of shame. Like, I think that's where all of the forces push you, you know, when it comes to things right. like your, your health and your body. And I mean, I agree with you completely. I, I fight the same, the same battle in a way that like every, it's just really, really easy for everything to come from a place of shame and dissociation and just to be really out of touch with, you know, what is 
what does it really mean to be healthy and, and why does this matter and and how can I make this about making choices that make my body feel better or feel stronger rather than coming from a place of shame and there's something wrong with my body. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's even necessarily, you mentioned dissociation. And then of course we know from research that that's something that often, you know, we develop as kids as a coping mechanism in, in various ways to, to deal with distress. I think that we live a lot of our lives, like really dissociated from our bodies and are not in touch with how food we eat makes us feel or how, you know, situations we're in or people we're around or choices that we make in our lives make our bodies feel and how our bodies and minds are connected. And it, again, totally. goes to show that like you and me, we're in like our late 20s. Like here we are learning these things now when like, wow, wouldn't it have been great to like always know these things, you know, and not to have to relearn yeah. them when you're an adult. Yeah, I feel like we, I feel like as a nation, there's like a collective arrest of arrested development that's happening <laughs> because like as a like in high school like my gym classes didn't teach me like they taught me logistics mm. about like being healthy but like they didn't teach me uh like ways to like empower you know yeah. myself yeah. like they didn't teach me about like why I should love my body as it is and like care for it mm-hmm. and I you know I didn't learn like uh I didn't learn uh, like spiritual practices like through high school of like, you know, uh, meditation as like a a way to cope with anxiety or like understanding Mm -hmm. like the, the, you know, the, the relationship between my emotions um, and how like, uh, like shame can like be debilitating, like in certain ways. Like I didn't learn Mm -hmm. that stuff as a kid, but like, I totally could have understood it. Um, and it would be amazing to have like a wellness class that just like is required and like teaches, uh, students like kids as early as like sixth grade to like love your body and like love your mind and like do things that care for it. Um, right. Right. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's like we, we could do that, right? Like we could make this different than how we're currently doing it if we really wanted to. And um, again, like if you think about like COVID as a, a potential opening to some new opportunities, like, you know, we can do school different when we go back. We can do health different when we go back. And we, I don't know, have had this kind of collective reset in so many areas of society. And I hope we take it as an opportunity to like when we go back to like make changes and innovate and do things differently rather than let's just go back to what we were doing before when it's so clear that it didn't work. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that I saw recently, there's a tweet from Andrew Yang. Um, and he, he said that he was excited for Trump to be out so that we can't blame all of our problems on Trump anymore. Mm, um, because like one of the, one of the things that like he talked about in his campaign specifically was that like Trump is a symptom more than Mm. like the cause of everything. And, uh, specifically with that, I think that he was just like, our problems run deep and like, I like getting in an environment where like the people who want to like make the progress happen can see that even just like a moderate democratic, like, uh, administration, um, is like really just the status quo still and like actual progress needs to move us forward. Like with all of our systemic issues. 
Very um, interesting. I, I think that's a great point. And I think it's something that, uh, I mean, I know you probably definitely agree with me on this, but yeah, like we are not like saved now that Joe Biden has been elected and Trump is leaving. <laughs> it's not, um, that is not our situation. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of problems. And I think he's right in a way that, you know, it's, uh, it's something where we have to grapple on a much deeper level about how we're going to fix some of the problems we're facing. One new president, no matter who they are, even if like I liked Joe Biden dramatically more than I did and thought he was amazing, you can't fix all these things. So yeah, right. we, we all have to kind of take responsibility for our own communities and our own corner of the world yeah. where we can we can do better. Yeah, and we could have, I mean, if it even if it wasn't Biden and it was like the most progressive uh, like candidate that we would have hoped for, like Bernie or Warren, like even they would still be very limited if we don't also like move behind them. Right. 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 Um, like, especially like this whole Senate situation, like with the two Georgia runoffs, um, like, yes, if we get those, it will be great because it will at least allow for Kamala Harris to be the tiebreaker. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, it, won't necessarily mean that we'll still be able to pass all the things that we want to pass. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it like really still, it it requires people to contact the representatives and like, say like, these are the things that are important. Like these are the things that we need to do. Yes, completely. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, this, How this much pop- time do you have? Oh, um, I should probably hop off in the next like 10 minutes or so here, if that's okay. But, you know, if, okay. if, I know we didn't cover like any of the questions you said. So if you want to schedule another time, we can always do that too. Um, I mean, I would love to have like a follow-up just because I feel like there's a lot that we could talk about. But yeah. uh, I guess my last question is maybe a little bit more focused on like what the theme of the podcast is. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> how how has your like research, how is your like um, experience in uh, the scientific community and healthcare community, how has that impacted your ethics and like how you view uh, and like kind of shape um, your view of the world? Yeah. You know, um, it's a really interesting question. I I think that before I went to nursing school and became a professor and got a PhD, um, my sense of ethics was shaped exclusively by um, my faith, by religion. You know, Mm -hmm. I was a Christian. I was raised in a a very uh, devout Christian family where where that was just central to everything that we did was our our faith and our religion. And it just came into everything. And so that really, I think in a foundational way shaped my own personal sense of ethics. Um, And a lot of that is grounded in a lot of the principles that we see in in Christianity around, you know, um, love and care for others around um, generosity and uh, being a servant, uh, putting others first and, you know, a a lot of those principles. Um, Mm -hmm. When I got into nursing school and, you know, uh, went down the road of being a a scientist, um, I think that even though the religious belief part and, and to some extent, the the personal faith part of what I believed about ethics went away, I think that I still retained a lot of the basic principles that are grounded in Christianity and a number of different big religions that really are are around a a foundation of justice uh, and equity and 
you know, in religion, we would call it love. In other settings, we might call it beneficence or care or something else. But this uh, orientation towards the world that like we need to do good in the world and we need to really think about how we can make the world a better and more just place. Those principles yeah. to me um, in a scientific way don't feel any different than what it felt like when I was a Christian, even though, of course, they're coming from a very different place. I think of it now um, in a couple of ways. So one is that when I practice as a nurse, you know, I work in a mental health setting where patients are very, very vulnerable and they're coming to us with a lot of pre-existing um, power dynamics that are very unusual in healthcare. What I mean by that is I work in a facility where we hospitalize patients involuntarily. We take patients who are having a mental health crisis or might be experiencing some kind of psychosis who do not want care and we force them to get it. Um, that creates a number of different um, potential uh, places in the system for abuses of power, for patients to be vulnerable, and for patients to not be put first and for their needs to be kind of cast aside by the system. So, you know, when I talk to patients and I go into work and I know that all these people are here because they've been forced to be here. And in many cases, they're alone, they're scared. Uh, they might be dealing with a mental illness that makes these things even worse and even scarier. I really try to approach them from that perspective of, you know, how can I show care? How can I look out for you and your best interests? And what can I do for you um, here and now on this one day that I'm here um, to put you first and think about how um, I, I can leave having done some good for you? Um, and, you know, that that is can sometimes be something really, really, really small, but it's something that I really try to practice um, every day when I go into work. On the scientific side, it's very similar. You know, there's a long history in science of researchers treating people in very, very inhumane and, and unjust ways. So scientists using people for experimentation um, and not caring about their well-being or what happens to them. There's even, you know, we have ethical laws now that require us to treat participants humanely, thank goodness. But even, you know, accounting for those laws, there's still a lot of ways that researchers just use people um, yeah. where we, we conduct experiments and we don't care at all about, you know, what impact the research has in the community. We don't think about what it means to test the intervention and then leave and take it away and not think about how it's going to be implemented in a more widespread way if it helps people. We don't think about yeah. what happens to people who are in like the placebo group or the control group that don't get anything at all out of participating in research and how we can do good for everybody involved in research. I am... Um, I think about these things a lot. And when I am um, at UCLA, I was trained in an approach to research called community-based participatory research, uh, which is a way of doing research that really flips a lot of the traditional dynamics of I, the researcher, am studying you, the subject, and takes patients and community members and puts them on the research team. Um, in this approach to research, you know, the people that were studying, in my case, I don't know, let's say I was doing a study on depression, I might invite people with depression or family members of people with depression to be a part of the research team, to have an equal voice in the design and conduct of the study and interpretation of the results and how we're doing things from start to finish and, and to really value the people that we're studying as part of the research 
and to honor um, the data and the knowledge that they're allowing us to generate for everybody. I really think that that is like the right way to do research. And the reality is that it's harder and it's slower. It means that um, like what I get out of the research um, in terms of my own scientific career and what's required of me is harder to achieve if you do research in this like equitable and person-centered way. But I feel strongly, very strongly that it is the only way to do research ethically. Um, and, and that, again, even though it's a super different context, feels like it resonates very much with the kind of ethical framework I was raised with in, in a religious context in terms of treat people the way you want to be treated, look out for the well-being of others, and seek to do equity and justice in, in the world. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's looked a number of different ways in my life, but I think that same framework is still there. Yeah, totally. That I feel like that's a really good answer. I feel like I couldn't have asked for a better one when you <laughs> talk about your personal ethics. Um, yeah. Uh, what can I ask you one more follow up question to that, and then sure, I'll let you sure, go. Sure. Um, so you talk about how uh, like a lot of your values that you had. Uh, growing up has like stayed with you, even though it's like through a different lens and context that you see. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what would you say is like, uh, um, like if we're talking about like spirituality from like a connectedness standpoint Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily like a, you know, a a non-material, uh, essence or world, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is, uh, the thing that you do that helps the most in keeping you grounded spiritually, um, mm-hmm. or like connected to like, um, like the human side of your work or like the, the way that your work really impacts, um, other people or like how to stay grounded when you're talking to a patient who, um, maybe not is the easiest person to talk to. Like, what would you say yeah, to you the most? Yeah. You know, this is again, a situation where like, despite me being really far away from being a practicing Christian anymore, like there's a principle from Christianity that really still resonates. So, and the principle is in, in Christianity, there's this idea that all of us have the image of God in us and all of us, you know, mm. part of the reason we love and respect and are connected to one another is because all of us reflect God. Um, and I remember back when I was in grad school and you and I were like hanging out all the time, um, Christina Cleveland, who is an author that I really uh, mm. loved and respected mm-hmm. a ton and loved learned a ton from, had a a story she talked about um, where she used the phrase that she used to approach her students, the image of God in me greets the image of God in you. And just this idea Mm -hmm. that all of us bear the image of God, all of us can connect with each other about this level of, um, you know, humanity and what it means to just be a human being and be someone who bears the image of God in a way that's really deep and profound and meaningful, no matter who you are or what political or social or any other group we're a part of. We all have this humanness and this thing, uh, this little like piece of God in us that brings us together. 
So, you know, on the other side of um, being religious, that still rings true to me. When I talk to people, whether it's, you know, a patient, a student, a colleague, anyone, I think that I have like over a life of believing that just developed a reflexive orientation towards people where um, I think there's a part of me that is just very curious to know that humanity of them and, and to, and to get to learn about it. I, I really love when I meet people to hear about how they think their experiences, where they're coming from. And I think just um, being able to honor and connect to their humanity, no matter who they are, uh, is something that I have an instinct to do. And I hope I'll always, always have that. Um, And that's really what keeps me grounded in, in research. Again, whether it's a patient or it's a student or whoever I talk to, I think that's how I approach a lot of what I do. Uh, That's what makes it meaningful. And I think if you approach the world that way and really value people's humanity, it does change the way that you do science. And for me, it changes the way that I practice as a healthcare provider too. It's, um, It's just very different than kind of operating within traditional power structures that are very hidden but insidious where we just treat people again like objects and want to tell them what to do and assume we know more than them or in a research context, treat them like subjects and assume that we can, you know, learn from them and take their data without thinking about what is the human side of this. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It definitely, it definitely makes sense. Uh, What you said about like the image of God thing um, mm-hmm. is not only something that I practice, but something that also remind me of a Carl Sagan quote, actually, mm. um, when I was like kind of grappling with like, how do I like continue to like include this, like in my life as like a ex evangelical slash like post Christian, um, yeah. where like I use some language of scripture, but it's not always the most helpful in, uh, explaining my beliefs to like another person just because Mm -hmm. like they might not have the same language to use but this quote i actually just looked it up um is uh, i'll just read it every one of us is in the cosmic perspective precious if a human disagrees with you let him live in a hundred billion galaxies you will not find another Hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. And and I think you're absolutely right. It's the same principle that we're talking about. And uh, yeah, I, I I love that this is like a framework that you can adopt and apply whether you are someone who is religious or you're a scientist or you're a human being doing something else in the world. Um yeah. I think it's something that really uh is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, that human side is I feel like so important and often overlooked because it's really easy just to like look at numbers, right? And look yeah. at look at the facts and not it, really it, see the people. It really is. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's especially this is like a whole other topic. We don't need to get into it, but it's especially true when uh, you know, we all know that we live in increasingly polarized um communities and social groups where the people around us are people that are just like us. They look like us, they think like us, they vote like us, and we um just have less and less and less opportunity to connect with people who are different from us. Uh so yeah, it's something yeah. that I think is just really important because if you don't, then it's just really easy to demonize other people and to lose sight of their humanity. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really 
really have wanted you on since I like had the idea to do this podcast. So thank you, Kristen. Oh my God, this was so fun. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm like honored to be a part of it and definitely like missed the days when we used to see each other every week and talk about these things Uh, all the time. It was like, uh, that was uh, definitely like a fond time of life that I, that I miss. Seriously. It was so good. I, I just feel like, I don't know, we could like pretty much pick any topic and like have a really intelligent and good conversation for like hours if we wanted to. I, I think so too. I think so too. Hopefully once this pandemic is over, you know, we could uh, be together in person at some point and uh, do more of that. Yeah. I still got to visit you out in LA. So you that's should come. You should point. come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, I mean, especially now being in the film major program, I'll probably have to look at internships one summer. So yeah absolutely Uh, that'd be that'd be really cool or hey maybe you'll move here it's uh who knows (laughs) maybe depending upon what happens i wouldn't i wouldn't hate it i wouldn't be opposed to it i'm still trying to recruit like all of our friends from uh post new life to move to la and so far like no takers (laughs) but someday someone's gonna take me up on it uh i mean if that's where the work is for me like i probably will end up going there because hollywood is as much as I wish that it was more distributed, uh, Hollywood is still where you find most film work, so. There you go, there you go. All right, well, um, it was good talking to you, GJ, and uh, yeah, we'll have to talk again sometime. You have not for your podcast. Like, we should just talk again because it's great to talk to someone who's thinking about things like this. Totally, I feel the same. Wow, what a great conversation. Thank you so much, Kristen, for being on the show. It was a joy having you on and being able to talk to you about, you know, all the things that we used to talk about before. Um, To the rest of you, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Uh, This was um, probably the last episode that I'll be putting out for a little while. Um, I'm starting school again in January and just like won't have as much time dedicated to this um, as before when I was just working and able to do this outside of work. Yeah, so uh, um, I can't really give you a super good uh, estimate for when the next episode will be out, but there will be more. But uh, it just might be a little bit less regular. Um, So please uh, continue to stay tuned. I will definitely make sure it is um, made known when new episodes come available. Thanks again, everyone. Truly, truly, I appreciate you all.